Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, and with me today we've got Dr. Sandeep Gupta. Dr. Gupta practices on the Sunshine Coast in Australia, and he's here today to talk to us about mast cell activation syndrome. Welcome, Dr. Gupta. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks for having me along. Fantastic that you could join us. So before we dive into this complex world of mast cell activation syndrome, perhaps just give us a bit of a, a background on how you got into integrative medicine. I believe you started off in um, as an emergency physician. Yeah, intensive care, actually. So, so my basic uh, introduction to medicine was pretty conventional. And I, I basically went through the six-year undergraduate course at the University of Queensland and 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 then did my internship and residency in in Brisbane and there was really was a fair bit of pressure to specialize initially and, and to find a specialty and I, it really took me quite a long time to find one that I gelled with and really what it ended up being initially was intensive care medicine and as much as anything it's really where I found that conventional medicine really stood out and really could do people a lot of good was when they were in an acute emergency situation that was life-threatening. And um, interestingly, we saw a lot of patients who, who were after cardiac surgery, for instance, and, and also after uh, a condition called sepsis where they would have a, you know, an otherwise fairly mild, which might be a urinary tract infection or a chest infection or something that turned into a whole body syndrome that could then become life-threatening within the matter of a few hours. And it was quite fascinating to understand that and, um, and how the inflammation or the inflammatory response of the body could in some cases become life-threatening or become the disease itself. And, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, when I guess, when, when it comes to diseases like chronic inflammatory response syndrome, that the, uh, the amazing parallels I saw afterwards. Yeah. That, you know, I basically had a, a, a bout of a gut infection myself when I was traveling in America, took an extremely strong antibiotic and then came home and started experiencing extremely bad headaches and, uh, and bad levels of fatigue and, uh, and also gut symptoms. And it really wasn't explainable in the conventional medical paradigm. And in a sense, I became a little bit disillusioned with the with the conventional paradigm in that it wasn't able to explain situations like that and, and many other situations that patients were facing. And it led me to try and understand the idea of the, the balance with it and uh, how we could actually maintain and restore the balance of the body and particularly looking at the the microbiome initially because essentially what had happened was I had, I had de massively depleted my microbiome using antibiotics but I actually had no idea that that occurred in my even in my ten or twelve years training wow. in medicine, which now seems to be quite you know quite surprising. Uh, and uh, so, really, just learning some basics such as going on probiotics, excluding commonly allergenic foods, taking some basic supplements, got me back up to a good state of health quite quickly. But it really reached a stage where I, I didn't feel genuine or authentic, not offering this perspective on medicine as part of my everyday practice. Yeah, it's not an uncommon uh, journey for, for uh, GPs in particular who move into integrated medicine. Um, what also strikes me about you is you've, what I 
dubbed like functional medicine 2.0, you're, you're into this real cutting edge areas of like uh, chronic inflammatory response syndrome and Lyme-like illness and now this uh, mast cell activation syndrome. So how did you get to where you are now looking at these more advanced areas? Yeah, so my journey basically then went into transitioning my career into general practice and, and integrative medicine. So I, uh, I actually did the general practice training alongside doing the um, ACNEM training, right. which is the, main, the mainstream of integrative medicine training in Australia, and really opened my own practice on the Sunshine Coast around 2011. And I actually was very lucky and fortunate to have a period of about six months where I felt like almost all of my patients got better. Uh, using just general nutritional yeah. medicine approaches. And what I actually experienced, Nathan, was that there was a whole other level of blood coming in who got zero or no results from standard nutritional medicine approaches. And it really made me put my thinking cap on in terms of what sort of approaches were going to be needed to actually help these people to restore their health. And, uh, and, and, and at the time, my partner uh, at that moment was, was actually experiencing quite severe health problems and actually had been diagnosed herself with, with chronic infections and, uh, and mold toxicity. And that led me to take the, uh, take the next step and do some specialized training with Dr. Peter Main in Sydney in, uh, in management of chronic infections and Richie Shoemaker. In, in America in, in the management of um, chronic inflammatory response syndrome and, and also just getting pieces of knowledge from various other physicians in the world who were looking at these cutting edge areas and really, really what I found was that it, we needed to go into these areas to be able to get the solutions uh, that we needed for many of the patients that, was, that we were seeing. Yeah. So what would your um, practice be now in terms of breakdown of, of sort of ailments? Be, you're seeing more, you're attracting more of these chronic conditions now that you sort of made a name yeah, for yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I think more and more. And, and it's not necessarily that there's that necessarily that sharp a demarcation between, you know, what is just a general derangement of someone's system through nutrition and, and nutritional breakdown True. and microbiome breakdown, for instance, and then where it actually then kind of transforms and becomes an issue of uh, chronic infections, chronic inflammation, and, and mast cell dysregulation. And I, I guess I really just see it, see it now as being the next stage of disease. Uh, when disease is allowed to progress to a certain level, it enters this category. And so I see this now as being a distinct category of, uh, of illness right. uh, as distinct from just nutritional, re nutritionally related illness and the, um, and the approach is quite different. And actually I find that's quite a, a useful approach in general is just starting by when, you know, when treating a patient and starting a therapeutic relationship is trying to really work out which category is this patient in. Is this patient in more in the category of nutritionally treatable conditions or more in the chronic infections and inflammation category, the treatable uh, quadrant where they actually, there is actually a, um, a group of patients who are actually appropriately treated by conventional medicine and the hospital system. And, yeah. um, and, and so I believe that's a really important, important uh, consideration as well as to work out which, which category of illness are we dealing with. And, and then once you've worked out the general category to orient yourself, then to kind of drill in further and, and, and work out, well, does this seem to be more under the category of a SERS kind of problem or MCAS or uh, which other 
other categorization is 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 probably best and 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 oftentimes you know there, there will be a crossover and and yes. and patients will fit more than one categorization yeah great i like the way you uh, you stratify things there and it makes a lot of sense all right so use yeah. that as a segue to let's have a look at this mast cell activation syndrome but first perhaps let's um let's just quickly cover off the mast cells because Many of us, including myself, before I had a, a deeper look into this, uh, new mast cells were something to do with histamine and allergies. But once I had a look into this mast cell activation syndrome, my world really changed about how I perceive mast cells. So could you give us a bit of a thumbnail sketch first about mast cells, how you see them, what they are, what triggers them, what they release, etc.? Yeah, sure. So mast cells are basically one of the major white blood cells in the body. And they're really considered to be the first line of defense of the immune system. So in general, you could say that they're a, a more, more generalized and, um, and more, you could say like a, a rough form of immune response rather than a very targeted immune response. Right. So, this, so it's a non-specific part of the immune system, and they're really found all throughout the body, but particularly in the mucous membranes, such as as the the mouth and nose and eyes, uh, etc., and also in in and around blood vessels and nerves, in the skin, lungs, and digestive tract. Uh, and it's also important to know that they're in the blood-brain barrier to a certain degree, so they may have a role in uh, regulating the, the leakiness or the, um, or the barrier function, mm -hmm. if you like, of the yeah. blood-brain barrier. Okay, yeah, so they're really widespread. Um, and, yeah, as I said, my crude understanding was that, say, antibodies and antigens will trigger those, but now I'm led to believe that they're t triggered by a far greater number of mediators. Can you go into some depth there? Yeah. So, so yeah. As you said, that commonly it's it's described that histamine is the main mediator released by mast cells, and that is correct. But there is actually it's now known that there is a, a whole host of different mediators that are released by mast cells, and and that includes histamines and prostaglandins, heparin and and tryptase and serotonin and cytokines, such as and and many of the cytokines are the same ones that we look at in chronic inflammatory response syndrome, such as MMP9 and TGF-B to 1. And, and there are some others like interleukin-6 and so on, which we know uh, can get suppressed by curcumin to a certain degree, and, um, and things like vascular endothelial growth factor. So the, I think it's important to realize there's a, it's not just histamine. There's a whole host of, of different substances that are getting released by mast cells. And so there can be a a range of different symptoms that one gets when mast cells have been triggered and there's a generalized mast cell activation in the body. Okay, great. So um, moving on to this mast cell activation syndrome, so we've got our, a sense of the mast cells and they're everywhere and they can release all these mediators. So what's this newly sort of identified entity called mast cell activation syndrome? Yeah, so I think mast cell disorders have been known and uh, and uh, have been identified for many decades. And in, in conventional medicine, the main focus has been on syndromes in which the actual total number of mast cells are increased. And, you know, so, so one of the hallmark conditions is called um, systemic mastocytosis, uh, where, and, and that's often diagnosed by a bone marrow biopsy, um, and where an increased number of mast cells are found and, and often quite strong immune suppressive medications are used. And 
It's also known that the, there is a, a subgroup of, uh, of secondary mast cell disorders. And, and so, for instance, in various allergic disorders, inflammation or cancer, you can actually get activation of, of mast cells. And there's also a whole range of urticarias where people get wheels and oh, yeah. similar skin rashes like that. And, and, and some of those can be um, autoimmune urticarias and, and some people get some people simply have urticaria which is triggered by by changes in the weather and so on and and they often they often fit under the category of of physical urticarias which are a you know secondary form of mast cell disorder um, and then the third category is idiopathic or really mast cell disorders where the cause is not as clear and and the hallmark condition of that is mast cell activation syndrome and basically mast cell activation syndrome is a syndrome in which there is generalized overactivity of the mast cells but not necessarily an increased number of okay. mast cells in the body and the the way i explain it in simple terms is that the the amount of antigens or toxins in the system is overwhelming the mast cells and therefore rather than acting in a coordinated manner they're just over activating and just releasing all of their chemicals in a chaotic manner because essentially the situation has exceeded their ability to respond okay so um, it seems like a it's a, a process rather than a a disease per se that the, the mast cells are yeah I, I think that's probably a better way of putting yeah, it yeah okay. so it's more like a process and there's certainly a number of different antigens or toxins that can that can trigger this and it is interestingly it does seem to be very much related to water damage building exposure as being one of the the, the major triggers uh, to, for this and um, however many other types of toxins including um, heavy metal toxicity and chemical toxicity, they will all contribute. And, um, and Dr. Jill Carnahan, who, who I spoke to about this uh, mid-last year when I, when I ran a webinar, which people can also find on YouTube, um, really described it as a, a useful concept as being the total toxin load in the body. And that when in any a, a different tolerance to to a different level of, of total toxin load and so in any individual when that total toxin load goes ab above a certain threshold they may start getting hyperactivation of the mast cells and which may lead to this situation where there's general overactivity of mast cells in the body leading to signs and symptoms of overactivities in the mast cells and we'll, we'll go on and, um, yeah. and speak a little bit more about all the signs and symptoms in a moment. Okay, so yeah, just to add to that, I've also heard that um, the mast cells also respond to uh, things like heat and light and pressure, and this may explain some people who literally have a, an allergy to exercise or, as you mentioned before, the, the changes in temperature. So it seems like to me it's almost a, a summation point of all this sort of external influences and toxins and uh, is running through the mast cells and all the mediators are, are releasing accordingly but perhaps overactively. Is that a reasonable assumption? Yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable way of putting it. And, yeah, you're right. Even simple things like weather changes and physical changes can also be stresses for the mast cell as well and can also, you could say, can temporarily lower the threshold uh, okay. or the, or the yep. toxin load is probably the way of putting it. Okay, great. 
All right, well, let's yeah have a look at how this expresses um, in the patient walking into your clinic. What's the, yeah, as we you just mentioned there, the mast cells are located everywhere and we've got all these triggers. So I imagine it's a pretty heterogeneous um, phenotype or the clinical picture can be quite broad. So what's what have you found so far? Okay, yeah, so often, so let's say we just, you know, my patient population who, who very much, it's it's very much tilted towards patients with chronic inflammatory and infectious disease. And so if you were to compare it just with a general um, population of patients who have, um, for instance, chronic inflammatory response syndrome due to uh, tick-borne infections or chronic inflammatory response syndrome due to water damage building exposure, there tends to be uh, a lot more symptoms related to the skin so they may be okay. flushing, itching, heat, hives, and pain. And there tends to be more symptoms related to the cardiovascular. That can include things like fluctuating blood pressure, uh, hypotension or low blood pressure, hyperotension or high blood pressure, um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is yeah. basically you'd be well aware of that, where patients stand up and, and find that their body's just not able to cope well, the heart is not able to cope with the demands of standing up, and therefore they get they get uh, dizziness and a high heart rate on standing up, and that can actually be very debilitating. Um, and uh, and then you know headaches is it, headaches and migraines are very common anyway in general SERS patients or or chronic infections patients, um, but they can be a certain certain type of migraine or a classic migraine generally will tend to have some degree of mast cell component to okay. it. And, uh, and so if, if, the, if, the, uh, if there's a lot of flushing and nausea and visual symptoms and so on, so, then many of those symptoms appear to be, to be mediated by mast cells and serotonin um, receptors. And so that if, if a patient's getting a, a very classic migraine, that tends to also be a pointer that, that mast cells could be involved in some way. Um, GI symptoms as well, I guess they're nonspecific and, and we probably find that most chronically unwell patients yeah. do tend to have GI symptoms of some sort, but certainly no, nausea, abdominal pain, bloating, constipation, loose stools uh, and, and gas, um, all or can also be signs of, of mast cell activation in the gut. So they're going to be more nonspecific sort of signs. But if, it's, if there's quite a predominance of, of gut symptoms, even when there's not much showing up on the test, that may be a pointer towards uh, mast cell activation syndrome. Okay. So, yeah, it's covering a fair few systems there, the cardiovascular, neurological, GI. Um, yeah. Musculoskeletal, have you seen pain, fibromyalgia-like conditions? Yep. yep. Yeah. They certainly, yeah, there certainly can be a crossover with a fibromyalgia-like syndrome, and uh, patients just getting generalized muscular pain, and some of those can be related to cytokines related for uh, released from mast cells. Um, there can also be a, a menstrual syndrome, such as pelvic pain and premenstrual syndrome. Endometriosis is something actually we see quite a lot in SIRS, but also can cross over with mast cell activation syndrome. And then, and then the classic respiratory symptoms you more associate with hay fever, such as you know nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, itchy or watery eyes, mucus, wheezing, etc. Wow. And and the other thing that's really common is is just food and um, 
food and chemical sensitivities. And these patients tend to be, and, and one of the patients I've had with this, who, the one, who was probably the most clear case I've had of mast cell activation syndrome, is that one of the, the really obvious things where he was only able to tolerate four to five foods. Wow. And so he had to have a very restricted lifestyle as a result of, of his um, such limited tolerance. But um, slowly, once we treated the mast cell activation syndrome, um, he was able to, to gradually expand the number of foods that he was able to tolerate, which was a bit of a win. Oh, excellent. So, yeah, it certainly covers all areas and pretty much sounds like a normal day in the office for, you know, if you have a dozen patients that all those conditions they're experiencing for that. So for me, that was a real standout thing was perhaps this is, could be not the missing link, but it could be a a missing link in some of the common conditions where we're currently seeing, like say endometriosis or uh, fibromyalgia, that we've never really considered the mast cells and, and addressing those. All right, so now that's the clinical picture. Now, what about if we turn to sort of the paperwork, the laboratory? What sort of can we do any tests? Are there any reliable tests to, to help sort of point rule this in or rule this out? Yeah. Okay. So one thing that's important to know is that. Um, the tests for MCAS are much more widely available and economical, but are generally less reliable than in chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And um, the main ones are serum tryptase, which is spelled T-R-Y-P-T-A-S-E. And ideally, you want to be doing the serum tryptase on a day where the person is actually reacting. Okay. Um, and that probably goes for most of these tests. And they're really only going to generally show positive if there's actually activation at the time that the testing is done. And so that's probably one of the main frustrations with the testing is that if it's done at a time where there's not much happening in terms of mast cell activation, then we're not going to see elevated markers. Um, so the second one is serum chromogrenin A. And... This is a marker that the, most of the medicos would know that we also use for screening for um, carcinoid syndrome and carcinoid tumors in the gastrointestinal tract, and uh, which also tend to produce um, excess serotonin. And it's important to know that, that the levels in mast cell activation syndrome are generally quite a lot lower than you would find in carcinoid syndrome. Okay. Okay, so the third marker is the um, plasma or whole blood histamine. And um, those doctors or naturopaths who are doing the biobalance testing will notice there's a significant crossover here with the uh, biobalance testing in which um, whole blood histamine levels are used as a surrogate marker for methylation. And um, often the biobalance doctors use a narrow reference range of, of around 0.4 to 0.6 on the whole blood histamine. And I think that's a useful reference range. And so it's a, really the, the bit of added understanding, I guess, on top of this is that um, that the whole blood histamine does also give an indication of the whole body histamine burden rather than just methylation. It is definitely related to methylation as well. Um, however, if a patient has very high histamine, it, it can re relate poor, to poor methylation, but it's just worth also being aware of the fact that it can just release, it can just reflect the fact rather that the body is is releasing a lot of histamine from mast cells for yeah. one reason. Okay, and um, so urinary methylated histamine as well. Do you test? Uh, I know um, some MCAS practitioners re recommend that test. Yeah, the N, yeah, the urinary um, N methyl histamine can be quite useful. I mean, I haven't seen many many positive results. 
but certainly recommended as a 24-hour urine collection. And that's probably a more accurate measure of, of total histamine release that's occurring in any 24-hour period. Um, I think the tricky bit is that you can't really assure that yourself that, that any patient is going down that metabolic pathway to because there are multiple pathways why, whereby the body degrades histamine. Yes. And so, you know, so, so it's, it's, again, they're not all very sensitive markers. Ideally, you'd want tests that 90% or plus sensitivity, which means that 90% of the time they would be positive when the actual patient is positive. But in this case, I suspect the sensitivity is quite a lot lower. Okay. The fifth test, which is, is more of an indirect marker for MCAS, is the eosinophilic cationic protein or ECP. And the American docs aren't using that so much. But it is widely available um, through the Sonic Group laboratories, and it does appear to reflect overactivities of, of mast cells, even though it's 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 named as being an eosinophilic protein. Um, it, it does seem to be a useful marker, and that perhaps could be the most sensitive of all the markers as per our uh, experience here in Australia. Oh, great! That's a that's a handy one to know of. So you use some of those tests, but you also rely on clinical diagnosis and I presume sometimes you'd maybe even just do a therapeutic trial would you is that fair to say yes and and so it's very important to know that there's that there especially in borderline cases you may not get positive markers and my experience has been it's more in the severe cases you'll start to see elevations of these markers um, above the normal reference ranges otherwise in the borderline cases there may be minor elevations over what's normal for the patient however often the the levels may not actually be outside the normal reference okay. ranges. It's predominantly a clinical diagnosis. That's right. And if you're finding, for instance, that the current line of um, of treatment is not working at all, and that you know perhaps that you're realizing that maybe there is mast cell overactivation going on, and that's actually could be what's blocking um, the particular patient's progress then absolutely a trial of treatment um, could well be warranted, especially if they have the signs and symptoms consistent with the disorder, even in the absence of, of the positive laboratory tests. Okay, which leads me on to my next question, that not rarely does a patient just have one, one ailment, particularly when they're seeing you. So um, how do we sort of organise the hierarchy of treatment, say, um, they've got a Lyme-like illness and we know that infection via the toll-like receptor activates a mast cell. You mentioned how um, water damage buildings, the, the biotoxins there can activate the mast cell. How do you, can you differentiate between like a, a chronic inflammatory response or a SERS patient with or without MCAS and how does that affect your treatment? Do you treat the MCAS first or you keep that in the back of your mind? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I think I think it is possible to get a rough idea of whether any particular SERS patient does seem to have a high level of, of mast cell activation or not. I mean, I I personally suspect that probably mast cells are going to be involved some way in almost all cases, but it wouldn't, you know, in it's only going to be a certain number of cases where there's actually you could consider that there's actually a global overactivation of mast cells and generally they're going to be more the patients that are getting the the skin symptoms and the flushing and and headaches um and allergic symptoms like you know like the runny nose and other symptoms like that which are not so typical of SIRS. right when you're starting to see those symptoms 
and also the patients who tend to react uh, a lot to 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 different treatments and and uh, medications, ah. especially when they're getting um, flushing and and itching and so on, that tends to be more the category that you're you're starting to to think about mast cell activation syndrome. Um, the other thing is if the patient is hypermobile, um, meaning they've got yoga teacher syndrome. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, where they have basically got an increased, um, increased level of, of mobility of their joints. And one way of, of determining that is just by flexing their hand backwards and, and, and seeing can they get past the 90-degree mark. Can they, you know, if they're flexing the thumb towards the little finger, can they um, increase the normal angle um, that most people are able to achieve on doing that? And um, do they notice that they're more flexible than, than the average? It it's also tends to be hypermobile people tend to be usually more of a, a tall and thin build. Yeah. And um, so it, it has been observed that mast cell activation syndrome occurs more commonly in those who are hypermobile. So that's another, another you could say that's another subgroup of SIRS as well. Those patients also tend to have higher TGF beta 1 levels. Ah, that's right, yeah to have more of a respiratory subtype of CIRS and um, and they also may tend to get more more MCAS and uh, and so generally speaking we recommend proceeding um, through the the SERS protocol as normal however if you find you're blocked so for instance let's say you you've um, you've basically done some testing on the person's home and workplace and um, and put in place some remediation uh, and, and even in the way of, of you know, air filters sometimes, a very simple way to go to start with. And then you start them on some binders. Now, you'll often find that these MCAS patients may even struggle to take the binders. And I'm actually finding that seems to be occurring more and more where, where patients are, are, are too sensitive to even tolerate you know the the preliminary steps of the SERS protocol, and so if you if you're getting getting difficulty at that first step, and many of the symptoms are an, of an allergic nature, then sometimes what you need to do is go off on the side and say, well, okay, actually it looks like I'm going to have to look at these mast cells and tone these mast cells down before we're going to be able to do any treatment for SERS other than um, remediation. Okay, that's that's really really helpful. Thank you. Yeah. All right, well let's dive into now treating these mast cells. Um, so they're they're obviously releasing their inflammatory constituents too readily. So how do you go about treating these mast cells? Do you try and stabilize the mast cells? Obviously remove the triggers, and I imagine some sort of anti-inflammatory protocol. Yeah. So obviously the the key treatment is to remove the triggers. So. And, you know, in a mold patient, the, getting away from the water damage building or remediating is still going to be of topmost priority. But it seems that in some, in many cases, you may have to. It's 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 similar to SERS in the sense that that activation may still persist, even um, when the cause has largely been taken away, and it's it's almost like becomes a stuck state of uh, of regulation of the system, and therefore we have non-pharmaceutical and pharmaceutical options. And often myself, I do try to start with the um, non-pharmaceutical options, and um, 
the the mainstay of that is using vitamin C and quercetin. Okay, great. And it's usually and and both of those are mast cell stabilizers. So um, often using them as a powder and and really getting people to to take reasonably high doses and building up. So. Um, with the, the vitamin C really trying to get up into the, the gram dosages, like three to five grams, and, and actually the same thing for the quercetin. Okay. Uh, those are actually the, the, the mainstay, and then adding in as the next line would be um, B6, in particular activated um, B6 or, or pyridoxal 5-phosphate, and omega-3s and curcumin. Um, and then looking at methylating supplements such as um, vitamin B12 and methylated folate and S-adenosylmethionine. Um, okay. To help um, clear out the, the histamine? Yeah, to start clearing out the histamine and, and being able to convert the histamine. And, um, and for many patients doing that simultaneously with a low histamine diet, especially if, many of the, if it does appear to be related to histamine uh, response or many of the symptoms appear to be related to histamine response and and so the the low histamine diet involves avoiding or at least reducing the levels of cured meat um, sugary foods and treats um, and alcoholic foods fermented foods and I know that that you know in general that they're widely recommended for health, but in in the case of MCAS, we don't want any fermented foods, and even even bone broths um, are going to be something that we would generally recommend to avoid, yeah. at least in the acute phase. And um, even things like spinach, citrus fruits, and tomato sauces, artificial food colorings and preservatives, and yeasts. Um, so it is overall a more bland diet. Okay. Have to go on for a certain period of time. Yeah, I was going to ask about the uh, low histamine, well, sorry, the histamine intolerance and how that dovetails into MCAS. So, do, um, just on a bit of a tangent, then the Dow enzyme, the diamine oxidase, which is somewhat of a, a reasonable marker in diagnosing histamine intolerance. Do you look at that in MCAS patients? Yes, um, that, that's that's kind of a subtype. It, as you say, it's more like a. It's more like a sign of histamine intolerance, rather, and there is a bit of a demarcation between histamine intolerance and MCAS, but there is also a big crossover. Yeah. Um, so if they've got a lack of, or an absolute lack of DAO, they are going to struggle. Patients are going to struggle to be able to degrade histamine, and that would easily then contribute to an overall um, systemic histamine overloaded yeah. situation. And so in those cases, actually supplementing DAO enzymes may be very helpful. Okay, great. Um, and while we're on this, other areas, I know that I think the gut, like dysbiosis with lipopolysaccharide, um, can trigger mast cells, um, stress, like uh, corticotropin-releasing hormone and cortisol activate mast cells. And I believe yeah. melatonin is a powerful mast cell inhibitor, so people with poor sleep may be worsened by this. So how do you... Um, do you look at sleep and stress and, and gut function as well, even in, say, water damage building patients with MCAS? Yeah, absolutely. Great point. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're some of the really key things to address. And so if a patient's having problems sleeping, then either using supplements that are going to increase melatonin uh, or actually supplementing melatonin yeah, okay. itself yep. can be really, really important. 
um, using supplements to to strengthen the um, the intestinal barrier is 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 key. And um, more and more, I'm using colostrum rather than glutamine-based products. Um, but there's a, there's a range of different things that are being utilized for that. And um, and then there appears to be certain probiotics which are beneficial. And this is this is actually an important area of mm. research. There do appear to be some which could worsen uh, MCAS, and there appear to be some which are beneficial. But it seems quite clear that lactobacillus rhamnosus, for instance, is one strain that appears to be beneficial, and most strains of bifidobacter okay. appear to be beneficial. So probably more limiting uh, probiotic usage to those at this stage until more data is available. Okay, great. Well, it's sort of reassuring to me that some of the, our staples like omega-3s and curcumin and quercetin and vitamin C and then that sort of um, systems biology approach of addressing sleep and stress and gut seems to be powerful stabilizers of the mast cells. So, um, yeah, just, do you have any comments there that sometimes yeah. we're, this is some new disease or condition but um, and we're sometimes searching for the new silver bullet but... To me, it sounds like some of their old favorites um, work really well here. Yeah, and you know, as as this field gets more and more complex, there is more and more risk of forgetting the basics. Yeah, true. Um, and um, I'm a huge advocate of of getting still going back to basics in every patient. And yeah, I mean, sometimes it's the, we are finding sometimes the patients become are becoming more and more impatient. <laughs> themselves and becoming less and less tolerant of practitioners wanting to go back to the basics. However, I really feel that that you know that helping patients to ju and just reminding them that overall it's still a lifestyle. Overall, it's still about the daily lifestyle. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> there's not going to be one silver bullet that's going to you know going to fix their ails generally. And I think um, that's probably something as practitioners that we face almost every day in, in the mentality and, and the desperation many patients have because they've seen so many practitioners and, and so on. And they often struggle with the mentality of being told to go back to the basics again. So anyway, that could be a, another <laughs> yeah, Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so a question you know, many of you may be asking is, well, why would we use pharmaceuticals for this if we're trying to practice natural medicine here? And I guess the answer is just certain patients seem to get so blocked in one or other direction that in some cases it appears necessary to use quite strong remedies to try to just unblock a particular pathway. And um, I wouldn't say it's, it's, it would be my default option. And as you said, Nathan, you know, just going back to the basics and making sure they're, they're getting all the basics right, such as sleep and digestion and water consumption, mold exposure and, and emotional release as well. Sometimes I'll put that in, I'll put that ore in the water as well, mm -hmm. in that some patients there appears to be a, uh, a strong resistance or an emotional block somewhere in the system that appears to be triggering their whole illness and um, if they don't address that then generally speaking no remedy seems to work very well um, so I'll just throw that in there as Absolutely. well as something yeah. to always keep in our mind and you know one of my colleagues in America Roby Mitchell says you can never medicate yourself out of things you lived yourself into <laughs> <laughs> and so I always think that's that's a rather powerful concept 
Um, so, so I do really like to, you know, to take a very broad view and to make sure that everything is being addressed before I would then look at pharmaceuticals because you could say in some ways it becomes then a line. When you cross that line, then it, there's, a, there's a change in mentality in the patient quite often. Okay. Where start to rely on pharmaceuticals a little bit more. And um, so you just have to be sure that really that 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 is um, that is the stage that you're at and that other things have been addressed as much as they can for the moment, if that makes sense. And um, and so then if you do decide to 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 go into that domain, um, the antihistamines are one option and the, the H1 blockers and the H2 blockers. So the H1 blockers are more classically what we think of as being antihistamines such as Claritine and Zyrtec and Benadryl and so on. And um, there's, the, there's the sedating antihistamines and the non-sedating ones. All of those are H1 blockers. Okay. And there's no one... That is absolutely the answer for everyone, but it, it has been said on, I noticed that some of the docs say that Benadryl is one of the ones that has been more effective, and that is a sedating antihistamine, so generally speaking, you would only use that before bed. And, You're right, um, of course. So sometimes people would use a sedating and, an, or, and a non-sedating together, I generally don't, but maybe Benadryl might be the one that you might try first. And um, and then often using that in combination with the H2 blockers. Other H2 blockers are the medications we used to use for mm. uh, for upper GI disorders such as um, such as peptic ulcers and gastroesophageal reflux, which include uh, ranitidine or Zantac, or cimetidine or Tagamet, or famotidine or Pepsid. And again, there doesn't seem to be any particular one which is most recommended. I mean, cimetidine does have a certain in incidence of gynecomastia uh, or, or man boobs. In, <laughs> so from that one. Yeah. Uh, so, but generally, ranitidine is the one that you would use and, and often it would be 150 milligrams uh, twice daily. And um, yeah, and, and so the question is, do you get long-term uh, an increase in histamine receptors with using these medications and nobody knows the answer but I do have a bit of a suspicion with that so um, actually my preferred line of medications are more the mast cell stabilizers and so the mast cell stabilizers to me seem to be much less likely to cause a, uh, a secondary compensatory response if that makes sense right and so the, as, as for my understanding of the human body, any time we block a receptor, the, the body tends to compensate by increasing the amount of receptors. Yep. And, um, and so ultimately, that's one reason why many pharmaceuticals then the dosage gradually has to be increased with time, and essentially they become less effective. So we don't know if that's the case with histamine blockers as yet, but um, I have a little bit of a suspicion around that. So... With mast cell stabilizers such as chromalin, ketodophan, or hydroxyurea, it would seem to me that it's less likely to, to elicit some kind of secondary compensatory response. And um, generally speaking, these medications have to be compounded up and are not widely available. Ah, okay. Hydroxyurea, I believe, is available on the PES, but I think not for MCAS. Uh, 
but it is available commercially. Um, and then there's two other classes that we sometimes look at. One is the leukotriene inhibitors, such as Singulair, which is used for asthma as well, um, or Zafilucast or Acolate, which is also, I believe, used for, for asthma. Um, and, and then the one final group is called tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. And the main one of those is called amatinib. And at this point, we have no experience. Okay, I think they've done some clinical trials in the US with those. That's more of an anti-inflammatory rather than a mast cell stabilizer? Yeah, yeah I think it's a generalized anti-inflammatory. Okay. Yep. It seems to be a bit generalized for, for using for mast cell unless there's serious desperation involved. Okay, great. That's a really practical and objective uh, list and review of all the medications which are at the disposal for, for some GPs, not for the, the naturopaths, but I think it's um, useful to know all the tools available and use what's according. All right, so we might just dive into or actually discuss some further education. I might just do a quick um, shameless plug for, on the metagenic side of things about MCAS. So we're going to, metagenic's going to host a seminar, oh, sorry, a webinar um, in April online on MCAS, so you can learn more about that. And at Congress this year in Melbourne in June, we've got Dr. Tanya Dempsey. She's an integrative GP from, from the United States who has recently actually got one of the key uh, researchers in the world on MCAS, Dr. Lawrence Afrin, managed to uh, drag him out of research and into her clinic to start treating the dis these disorders. So Dr. Dempsey's going to talk more about MCAS there and also how it applies to hormonal conditions, as you said, with endometriosis, etc. So that's a couple of things on the radar going forward. And now I want to turn to you and what you've got to offer for practitioners and patients. You're doing some great stuff online with um, MCAS and particularly mold illness. So what have you been up to in your spare time? <laughs> Yeah, all of that spare time of mine. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I've actually launched an institute now, which is known as Lotus Institute of Holistic Health. Um, you can find that online at lotusinstituteHH.com. And um, the main flagship course at this moment is called Mold Illness Made Simple, which many of the listeners would already know about. Um, really just filled a gap in the market, I guess, on education on chronic inflammatory response syndrome and really providing a very simple conceptual framework for people to understand that that disorder. And, and really the, the main um, motivation for creating that course was there just appeared to be a large number of, of patients and practitioners who were dealing with the syndrome who appeared to be very overwhelmed uh, with the information that was around and uh, and therefore creating just this eight-week course, which has around 15 modules and has uh, PDF uh, downloads for each module and videos and um, multiple choice questions at the end of each week. It just appeared to be a much simpler format where people could go through the information one step at a time and get some confidence uh, over being able to deal with this syndrome. And um, so that's available. And if you go to the Lotus Institute homepage, you can click through um, to the Mold Illness Made Simple course just by cl clicking on the area which states Mold Illness Made Simple. And what's coming up is a practitioner certification in integrative medicine, which is going to be a six-month certification course which covers a whole bunch of areas, including um, stealth infections and, uh, and SIRS and also mast cell activation Syndrome. There's also a really other interesting um, area of research now, which is called the cell danger response, which really ties together a, a whole a whole bunch of different facets of research and looks at how the cell 
starts malfunctioning um, in in many cases of chronic disease, and and that's going to be also a major focus in the training, and is understanding the cell danger response mm. and works of of Robert Navio over in San Diego, and so that's some, certainly something to look out for. Also, keep an eye out for Moldenus Made Practical, which is uh, expected to be launched mid year. Uh, which is going to be the next level of, of uh, education on chronic inflammatory response syndrome and include um, one module specifically for practitioners. And then we have also a three-day intensive, uh, which we generally are going to offer every year. I haven't actually got dates for that okay. this year. But uh, if you keep an eye out on the website and, and sign up to the newsletter, uh, we'll certainly let you know. That's, when, uh, that's amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. And we'll put the, the links on our website. Um, it's starting to pour down here in Brisbane, so hopefully I'm not going to get water <laughs> damage time here. But um, <laughs> that's probably a good time to wrap it up. You've been really generous with your time, um, Sandeep. It's uh, been great to catch up with you again. You're you're a hit last year at Congress, and um, yeah, I'm going to check out this cell danger response now. If, um, might be a tip off for something in the future we can come back and, and talk about. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, take care and uh, I hope to see you soon and, and thanks for helping um, spread the information about mask cell activation syndrome. You're very welcome. Thanks, Nathan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.